would you grab uh, your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel 29? If you're using one of the Bibles there behind one of the seats, it's page 235, I believe. 1 Samuel 29. Uh, the time we have here, it's going to be uh, kind of a shortened time here that we have in God's Word because uh, after this we're going to have a couple baptisms as well and just rejoicing in so many things that God is doing, including sending and including saving and all the testimonies of that. And uh, uh, the inexhaustible mercy of God, the inexhaustible mercy of God. I'll talk here in just a little bit. This is a, another unique, weird chapter uh, with what's going on in David's life, and, and yet uh, I've just been so encouraged and impressed with the mercy of God in it. Um, you have on the screen the uh, image that I had used a couple Sundays ago because the story continues from a couple Sundays ago. Uh, we'll get there in just a second. A quote that has been uh, leaning into me not only a year ago when we used it significantly in our Radiant God series, but even in the recent weeks has been a quote by A.W. Tozer. What, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Amen. What comes into your mind, what comes into my mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Actually, out of that statement, the five words that have been really leaning into me over the last few weeks are the five words of when we think of God. I've been pondering through, hey, life gets busy, right? Life is active. Things move along. Life is complex. Life is just weird sometimes. And yet, in it, how often am I really thinking of God? Am I really bringing the reality of when I think of God here, now, in this, not just in general? Being transparent with you, these recent chapters have been uh, God's taken me to the mat. For us gray hairs, this term, God's taken me to the proverbial woodshed. Um, it began a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel 27 through 28 verse 2 and titled that, When People Disappoint. And in that chapter, life was just going weird with David. I mean, we had been studying like the nine chapters before that, and I was just, because for me, I am so into the characters. They become part of my life in things. And I'm like so just thrilled in learning about David as a young man and in this time and is now in his 20s and some of these latter, upper 20s and these latter chapters and, and just so impressed and it's just so encouraging to see that taking place with David. And then we, we get to this chapter and, and, and he's, he's running from, rightfully so, he's trying to be, uh, get away from Saul, King Saul just chasing after him and pursuing him. So he goes over into the land of the Philistines but, but it just gets weird. And I'm like, what's up with you, David? It's even in what's happening, it's like your character. 
and your actions. It even seems like folly, David, like you're embracing folly in gaming and kind of charading a system. I mean, here you even have multiple wives going on. You're, you're living among, among and aligning with the Philistines, uh, the very enemies of God, and then there's just, I can't say it any other way, but there's just this manipulative deception that's going on in the word you're playing with Achish. It's just weird, David, and I'm so disappointed with you. As I talked about that on that Sunday, it's just about like John 8 and the rock and picking up the rock to stone the woman. And it's like, I just found myself doing that with David. And later, actually, in that week, and I'm just seeing, it's like, my goodness, this is me. Even just a pattern in my life since my latter teens, in my 20s, into my 30s, and yeah, we'll just keep on going. Critical and kind of getting disappoint, disappointed with him or her or them or they and or me and getting discontent about it and and then, frankly, just having kind of a complaining spirit. The following week, Pastor Chris was going to preach, and so I actually had some days free. And I decided not to come into work all week. I don't know if you're like me, but kind of when God leads in, I can have this tendency just to get busy and, you know, get caught in the busy and all the hectic and just busy my head with things and, and kind of run out of God leaning in on me. And so I'm just like, I, 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 I just have to let the Lord lean in. One thing I've been learning by his grace, you just got to sit in it sometimes as hard as it is. It just got kind of as time on, went on, it was good, it was needed, but it was also... It was discouraging. Felt defeated like this. Isn't God going to get tired of me at some point? You ever think that? Like at what point in time is God kind of like, you know, Doug, I, I've delivered a whole lot of mercy on you. I'm just tired. So Chris takes us to 1 Samuel 29, when the people are desperate, so good. If you haven't listened to it, you need to. And I could just feel the same complaining spirit rising up in we, me with Saul. I mean, Saul's already gone weird, but he went weirder. And I'm sitting there like, dude, I just want to smack you. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What has God been leaning in on you on? I was encouraged that I kind of saw it sooner than maybe I normally would. But just discouraged that there I am again. And so then we come up to 1 Samuel 29. And it's a weird chapter. More weird with David. And I'm literally this week like, oh no. I've got to prepare more weird. But I'm encouraged. Friends, 
God's mercy is inexhaustible. What are you talking about, Doug? I'm so glad you asked. Let's go to the chapters. Chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Let's get the context. Just remind ourselves. David is in the land of the Philistines. He's aligning himself with Achish. Verses 1 and 2, chapter 28. It says, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are going to go out with me in the army. Like, what? What he's saying there is the Philistine king is saying, hey, David, who, by the way, was anointed by God to become the king of Israel, David, join with me and fight against Israel. I'm telling you, friends, this is like messed up. And I'm waiting for David to go, no way. But then verse 2, David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what this servant can do. Now, there's a typical guy, right? Locker room chat. Yeah, I'm tough. And then we come to the end, and Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And so we come to 29, and let me read the 11 verses of chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces in Afek. Afek, you can see up there a little bit. Gath is where uh, Kings, uh, I'm sorry, not King Saul, Achish and his men are. Ziklag was where David and his men were given that area. They're coming up to uh, a fake. And the Israelites were encamped in the spring that is in Jezreel. You can see that up north uh, further. And as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing in the rear with Achish. Why were David and his men passing in the rear with Achish? Because of verse 2, chapter 28. Because David has been made the bo- uh, Achish's bodyguard for life. So he's coming along as the bodyguard, which is just weird. And so as they're passing by, uh, they see David and his men. Verse 3, the commanders, the generals of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is is this not David, uh, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years and since he deserted to me? I have found no fault with him to this day. Hey, friends, remember, David is the guy who some 10 plus years before this took out Goliath of what city? of Gath, the Philistine. And they're going, this is the guy that took the dude out a decade ago, and now he's on our side? Listen, I would not trust him as well if I were them. And yet Achish comes back and he's like, but, 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 but you don't understand, David has proven himself over about the last year and a half to be very faithful to me. That's concerning to me, by the way. And so the commanders of the Philistines said to him in verse 4, Send him back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him, back to Ziklag. And he shall not go down with us in battle altitude down. They're going up, but uh, down. (laughs) Lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to the Lord, uh, his Lord, which is not God, but uh, to Saul? Uh, Would it not be with the heads of the men here 
Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Remember that? Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and, um, and, to, me, honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out in with me to the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you for the day of your coming to me uh, to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So David, go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, awesome, I'm out of a pickle now because I've been like wondering how in the world after working this for the last year or so, I've got myself and I'm now your bodyguard and I'm going to go fight for my people. Phew, thank you for getting me out of this pickle. I would hope David would say that, but he doesn't. And David said to Achish, verse eight, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Interesting terminology. I'll leave it there for today because of time. Verse 9, and Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines, they have told me he shall not go up with us to battle. Now then, David Arise early in the morning with the servants of, of your Lord and uh, who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. And verse 11, so David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. In other words, Ziklag. Uh, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. I'll tell you what, this is usually where I would like to keep reading. Like, can we go into chapter 30? Because, like, what is happening here? And I don't even know what content we're supposed to bring to the table. I actually think this is a great point to stop. Nothing's resolved here. Everything is left unresolved. And let me say this. We yearn for resolved, but most of life is lived in unresolved. In fact, I think I can prove scientifically that 94.5% of life is lived in the unresolved. Doug, what's your science behind that? It's called Hallmark science. Hallmark science. You see, a Hallmark movie is about 90 minutes. 85 of those minutes are unresolved. Last five, ta-da! resolved. Right? I'm telling you, get your calculator out. 90 or 85 divided by 90, you'll work the science out. It's 94.5% of life is lived in the unresolved. Hallmark proves it. But jokingly, I would actually say there's a lot of truth to that. Most day in and day out is life in the unresolved. And so we're going to park here for just a few minutes and kind of what can we get out of this for life lived in the unresolved? Well, let's review just quickly what happened. Dave's continuing to live in the unresolved. Um, Achish has invited him to join in this war against the Israelites. David in chapter 28 verses 1 and 2 said, very well. Philistine armies then in chapter 29, they gather in Afake and they go to, to head up to war. The Israelites gathering themselves together. 
At the same time, the Israelite armies, they're gathering up in the valley of Jezreel. Uh, the war is about to begin. You can feel the intensity of gladiator. The Philistine generals and Afake, they see David coming with Achish and his 600 men, and, and they're like, whoa, 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 you have Achish, you have the enemy within us, and they're going to war with us? Hey, Achish, this does not make any sense at all, and as I said, if I were them, I would 100% agree. And then Achish tells David that although he's found him faithful and loyal, David needs to go back. Uh, David responds to her, what, what, what have I done? What have I done to be left out of this battle? Which is just weird. And then verse 11, David and his men head back to Ziklag. Achish and his men head up to this battle. And I would summarize the end of it this way. David is off the hook. You see, uh, without taking the time today, David has been in this season of time for about a year and a half in these chapters. David has been, I, I just don't get what he's quite trying to do. And it's interesting that the human author of the scripture uh, does not tell us the actual intent of David. And if you stay with as it's moving along and don't go ahead too far, you, you stay in the time of unresolved and you're just scratching your head. David, what are you doing here? You are like becoming an enemy of your own people. And now you, you kind of got yourself caught and now you're being kind of dragged into this war. Do you have like some scheme in your head that you're going to work? But I'll tell you, we're not told what it is. We might imagine, but it's just like, David, this is just weird. And yet all of a sudden now he's sent back home and it's like, whew, problem resolved. Now he doesn't have to go to war against his own people. Dilemma taken care of. He's out of the pickle. And readers like us, we go, what do we do with this? Well, what do we do with this? I would suggest we start with Tozer's five words. When we think of God. Right here, and for me, I'll just say, for me, what is a chapter of continued confusion with David? Oh, where's God in this? How am I thinking about God in this? Well, that's kind of an interesting question because like, where is God even in the chapter? It doesn't really even talk about God. Achish makes reference to Yahweh, but that's only because that's what he knows David wants to hear. And there's really no uh, activity of God. We don't read God did anything. But I would like to put this on the table. Is that not so often the case, the reality of how God works in 94.5% of our life? Silently, quietly, yet fully. Listen, God is using pagan generals and a pagan king to get David out of a predicament that I have no idea what David's gonna be doing with this whole predicament. God is working through pagan people in his mercy to get David extracted out of a real dire situation. So with this, let me delve in that a little further. What comes to our minds when we think of God? Uh, you remember 
this, if you've been around here for a while, this is almost exactly a year ago, we we're going through a series here called Radiant God, grabbing a hold of the, really the first word of our church name, Radiant. It's not about we're radiant, it's about God is radiant. And in that, it, it's, it, it's, I don't even like using so much the word attributes as in God's intrinsic nature. And we went through and we talked about these things, how our God is eternal and triune and self-existent and self-sufficient. Our God is unchanging. Our God is creator. Our God is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-holy. Our God is a covenant maker. Our God is long-suffering. Our God is sovereign. Our God is faithful. Our God is just. Our God is mercy. Our God is jealous, our God is gracious, our God is good, our God is loving, our God is radiant. One of the important things out of that series for me, and I trust if you were there for that you still remember, is this, that the reason I don't like so much to use attributes is because I think we can have this idea that there are these attributes that are, exist out there, and God, the Godhead, happens to best resent represent those attributes that are out there. The Godhead represents them better than we do. I think that's wrong thinking on this. Why do I say that? Because there is not a set of these attributes that God happens to be the best at them. The fact of the matter is God is them. Big difference. Friends, God is love. There is not love and God happens to be a lot of it. God is the very definition, the very reality of love. God is mercy. God is grace. When we think of our, when we put our minds to it, we, we begin there. If we're confused with a text and we're not sure where to go, step back. Remember who our God is. And then, uh, might I say, narrow in. I'd like to narrow in on the intrinsic reality of our God's mercy. Let me do that here just for a moment. It was April 26, 2020, last year, when I preached a sermon on our God is mercy and had this in it. God's mercy, as definition, is an affection, an inexhaustible inclination, a love-driven compassion that acts Compassion is not just a feeling. Compassion, biblically, of our God is an action. It is out of his mercy that he acts. And I can prove it. Ephesians chapter two, verse four. Verses one through three is telling how we are, are filled in sins upon sins, separated from God. Verse four, but God, rich in mercy. You see, out of his mercy, it then tells us, sent Christ. It was a mercy that was not feeling sorry and sat back, but a mercy that acts. An affection, an inexhaustible inclination, a love-driven compassion that acts to relieve the misery, the affliction, the suffering of another or others. Doug, you, you say that God's mercy is inexhaustible, but have you like looked around at our world and seen the mess that it is? Have, so have, and know this, 
This world only exists because of God's mercy. See, we have the wrong question. We have the question of why does God allow anything bad to happen? That's the wrong theological question. The right question is, is why does God allow anything good to ever happen? Because once sin came into the picture, this literally, theologically, should have been a living hell. But God, in his mercy, (laughs) Genesis chapter 3, promised one would come who would be bruised by Satan, but would deal Satan a lethal blow. It's called the cross and the resurrection. You see, we have mercy all around. Might I call it God's general mercy? Everybody experiences it. But no, God's mercy is not simply some economic-based mercy. You know, Doug, I just want a mercy check from God in the mail. That's called prosperity gospel. And I'm just going to say it. It's heresy. God's mercy is not economic-based. God's mercy is not functional-based. God's mercy is not circumstantial-based. But I have hard times, and I've not seen God's mercy in that. Uh, Are you just a second? You are. You actually are. It is not health-based. Let me put it this way, maybe in uh, you and me terms. God's mercy is soul-based. God's mercy, first and foremost, has to do with the problem of our separation from him. And not only from our separation from him, but our deprived bentness towards sin, even if redeemed in Christ. You see, God's mercy is first and foremost about a salvific work in us. And God's mercy is second and foremost about our being increasingly set apart for him. Uh, Listen, friend, the Lord wants to save you from your sin condition. And the scriptures say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the scripture says also, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In God's mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, but out of his rich mercy, he sent Christ. Not by works are we saved, but through the work of Christ, through the mercy of God, provided through the work of Christ. And when that is received, made available, and when that is received, we have God's mercy applied to our soul and redeemed and covered by the work of Christ. Thank you, God. But it doesn't stop there. Because if you've come to Christ, you know how you and I were, I even alluded to it earlier, we're bent towards sin. Hey, listen, I came to Christ when I was seven years old, and I've been bent ever since towards sin. It's still there. And yet God is seeking redeemed, and yet God is wanted to Colossians 2, 6, and 7, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted in him, built in him, strengthened in the Lord. And we studied in James at the, in the fall, that, that chapter 1, that God trials, God tests our faith. Why does God do that? Because I would say out of his mercy, he knows that we need to grow. 
And God doesn't want to just save us. God wants to save us so that we could be then increasingly set apart and progressively growing in Christ. And his mercy is there, and his mercy is all the way through that. And so in his mercy, personally, I can say this. God has been taking me back to a woodshed of having, maybe not verbally, but even in my own heart, an ease to have a critical spirit in me. And by God's mercy, he keeps taking me back to that woodshed because he knows I haven't grown out of it yet. And so if you're seeing God's mercy as just God give me fluffy bunnies and cream puffs, God is not a pampering God, God is a perfecting God. And in this friend, if I could conclude it this way, there was an extracting mercy with David. God used a pagan king and pagan generals to extract him out of a really dilemma situation and get him out and place him back in Ziklag. There was an extracting work of mercy that would be done. I would say uh, uh, God does that at times in our lives where he just pulls us out of the situation or God, with our salvation, God extracts us out of our depraved sin condition before him. But know this, God doesn't then set David back in Israel on the throne. God actually sends David back home to Ziklag, still in Philistine territory, with Saul still running after him. Why? Because God has some more things to do in David's life. God's extracting mercy also includes God's remain in it mercy. Because there's more for David to learn and more for me to learn and more for you to learn and it's all by God's mercy. David did not earn God's mercy. We're earners. David did not earn it at all. God, rich in mercy, extracted him out, placed him in, because God's got more work to do in him. And that should be our story. Do you have such a story? Where God has extracted you out of your sin condition through receiving Christ? You know what? We're going to hear that story of God's mercy in just a minute in baptism. And then in God's mercy, God keeps growing us. And so Lord, I want to thank you for that. I just want to thank you for the hope of your work in our lives. You don't give up on us. You also, uh, you continue after us. You're not just sitting there watching us walking around. You're actually fully engaged. And sometimes that means in your mercy, you do a silent, quiet, in the unresolved times of life. You're just at work. You're just at work. You're just at work. You're always at work in your inexhaustible mercy. You never leave. You never fade. You never fail away. Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come 
to an end. They are new every morning. Oh, thank you, God, for your inexhaustible mercy. Amen.